Welcome to Unstyled. I'm your host, Christine Barbrick, co-founder and global editor-in-chief of Refinery29. Each week, I invite a notable person to come in and talk with us as we explore the funny, inspiring, sometimes heartbreaking tales of life, work, and love, as told through the things that we wear. It's been nearly 30 years since Naomi Wolf first published her pivotal book, The Beauty Myth, a venerable work of journalistic analysis and cultural criticism that sent shockwaves through the modern world. She was just 28 when it hit shelves. And the way we think about women's looks and their relationship to women's power in society has never been the same. Though our conception of beauty has changed a lot over the last quarter century, Wolf's thesis that we punish women who aspire to power by raising the beauty standard bar to unreachable heights is as relevant today as it ever was. Of course, Wolf herself has changed a lot since holding up the magnifying glass to the way we perceive a pretty face. The beauty myth solidified her place in the pantheon of professional feminists, and she led the third wave through the 90s as a thought leader, writer, and activist. When she joined Al Gore's campaign in 2000, for one hot minute, it looked like Wolf might end up in the White House. It didn't come to pass, but Wolf kept on, demanding better from democracy and society at large. And in the years since her debut, she's written seven more books, the subject of which range from positions on porn and sexuality to politics and civic life. But even though it's clear that the written word is Wolf's most powerful weapon, as well as the place where she's cultivated her voice as a feminist, cultural commentator, and an outspoken mother and mentor, she's also turned her attention to online activation. Her two-year-old website, Daily Clout, is a place where people can go to learn more about digitally engaged democracy starting with what that actually means, driving disruption and real grassroots change. So the beauty myth was just the beginning, having raised two young feminists of her own while also teaching an entire generation of young women the need to bravely question and challenge what drives the status quo. Naomi Wolf keeps reminding us to never ever accept anything at face value. Naomi Wolf, it is such an honor to have you on Unstyled. Thank you so much for being here today. I'm so excited. <laughs> I'm a little nervous, too. Oh, well, please don't be nervous. I'm really honored to have been asked. Refinery29 is one of the sites that I really admire most, um, especially, Thank you. especially because of the way it talks to young women. I really appreciate that. Considering the fact that you've written many books, but the relevance of the beauty myth that you wrote in 1991, tell me about how that book came to be. You know, I was very fortunate because I was very young. I, I wrote that book when I was in graduate school. It was the right book for the moment. I think that a lot of young women and older women were ready for a new discussion about feminism. You know, during the 80s, before the book came out, we'd been told over and over, it's done, it's over, no one's interested in feminism, it's dead. It was so ironic because the 70s had been this huge decade of victories for second wave feminism. And of course, you know, the culture wants that to go away when you've got patriarchy. So I came of age as a college student hearing it's dead, it's dead, it's over. At the same time, I saw all around me in college, at I went to Yale, which I've written about, it was in some ways a very corrupt place in terms of gender. Um, I was sexually harassed, for instance, by a professor, and I've written about it, and it was totally, they had 20 years of covering up sexual assault at, at Yale. It's still very bad. But anyway, you know, I was I was in this, like, very privileged 
educational environment with the most fortunate young people in America. And I saw young women around me suffering. And they were suffering from things like what I just described. But they were also suffering from sexual assault at you know, parties in secret societies, and they were suffering from not being taken seriously in the workplace as soon as they got out or during their summer internships, no matter how brilliant they were, but they were really suffering about their bodies and about how they were allowed to feel about their bodies. And specifically, the eating disorders on campus were out of control, and they still are. The numbers are exactly the same. About a third of women on college campuses have anorexia or bulimia or an exercise disorder. And probably a larger percentage have generally obsessive or disordered eating and exercise patterns. But I had a close friend who was severely anorexic. And I had been anorexic when I was 13 for a short period of time. And it was just so clear to me that no matter how much privilege and, and access and empowerment my generation had at that time, we were not going to be empowered if we were enslaved to this ideal of beauty that was so set up to make us fail. And specifically how thin the ideal was at that time, especially, you really did have to kind of starve yourself to fit it. So I'd been studying the 19th century and I saw this pattern in history of backlashes that every time women moved forward, there was a pushback from society. And I, I saw that that had happened in the 50s as well in the 20th century when there was this big push forward of women going to work during World War II. And then when the men came home, it was the feminine mystique, be a housewife, you ha your house has to be spotless, you have to dust in an apron and high heels. And I just looked around. So there uncomfortable. Thought, <laughs> right. I thought this is clearly a backlash. Like this ideal is not about beauty. This is about something else. It's political. I think there's so much of what you talked about in the beauty myth that still tracks to today. And I think obviously given the political climate and all of the discussions we're having around all sorts of equality, but I think that more specifically for this conversation really around women, mm -hmm. what do you think are some of the new beauty myths? Hmm, that's a great question. So I have a 22-year-old daughter and her generation, they definitely struggle with a lot of this stuff. But do you also, think it's amplified because of social media and just sort of the constant reflection and projection yeah. of image all the time? Absolutely. I think it's mirrored with social media and also with pornography, which we, you know, haven't Which you've also written yeah, a lot yeah. about. But having said that, those things cut deeper, but I really see young women today, a lot of them, I would say even the majority believing that they have the right to call themselves beautiful. They may not always live up to that ideal they set for themselves every day. But I do see women carrying themselves differently. I do. I do see more diversity. I see, you know, people trying to be empowering and, and validating to their women friends, you know, in not having to fit themselves into such a rigid mold. I see moms trying, not always perfectly, to give their daughters the message that, you know, the way they are is beautiful. And, you know, I definitely see that, and this is very related, that young women have created and absorbed a, a message that they're entitled to their own sexuality and sexual pleasure. And these things are so closely linked. And if you actually, I mean, I don't like the word objectification when it's used in a very reductive way, because 
feminism sometimes forgets that we are bodies, you know, and, and that beauty is a thing. Like beauty, as, aesthetics is a thing. Like there's nothing wrong. In the end of the book, I tried to com- communicate this. There's nothing wrong with wanting to adorn yourself or wanting to seduce or enjoying, you know, feeling gorgeous, What whatever that means to you. Children have that sense that they are delicious and lovable and admirable. So I'm all for it. You know, I but I, I do see a lot of progress in young women at least knowing that there are lies out there that the media tells and that they have a choice about not believing them and definitely saying I want to own my sexuality. I want to feel good about myself. You know, with a 22-year-old daughter, and also now you've you've recently launched a digital media company, which we're going to talk about later. But what do you think the impact with social media on these kinds of themes in women's lives? Do you think that it's problematic? What do you think the opportunities are? I mean, I think it could be a force that really enslaves women. Like when I first realized that women were posing naked for followers on Instagram, I really thought, wow, this is like kind of troubling because any young woman will have this temptation or this expectation that she should just show her body and get, you know, that validation. I didn't of more think you could. Followers. I thought you could shut down if you showed, if you... Um... No nipples. Oh, okay. But you know what I mean, like yeah. lots of butts and whatever. I mean, it's like, it's not the... Just exposing yourself. Yeah. And, and you do see, and I hear this from mothers of teenage girls, you know, the sort of horror when they see their daughter's social media and it's like highly, highly sexualized this very porny male gaze kind of way. And obviously that's not great. I don't love it. And I do think the constant photographing can make, you know, young women who have a tendency and the new science shows some some young women have a biological vulnerability to eating disorders that certainly can make it worse. That's just kind of the amplification of the mirror. Like if, if women are going to be obsessed, they had mirrors and plenty of them were obsessed before there was nonstop social media. I mean, not that they're not both real, right? They're both really real, these pressures. But I really do see the internet as radically, radically liberating to young women, radically liberating because, and I always think of the Arab Spring, because what a lot of people don't know is that young Egyptian women who were tech savvy, they might have been in very um, conservative households, but they had their smartphones, <laughs> you know, they were able to lead that revolution online. And technology lets women in those contexts code, you know, long distance or mobilize campaigns, you know, from behind their smartphone uh, in their room. It's just access, access. And also the way you mobilize people digitally is comfortable for women's sense of leadership. You know, a lot of young women, I had a young women's leadership nonprofit for 10 years, and they're uncomfortable from every background going up in front of a crowd and standing up on a podium and saying, follow me. But online, if it's about, you know, lassoing your networks and your friends to make some kind of change that you believe in you know, the technology is very comfortable for young women to show leadership in that way. Seeing examples of it in front of you is actually such a motivating thing to actually see young women, you know, and see yourself in those women. Absolutely. And there's, I mean, we are in this kind of renaissance moment for feminism. We really are with young women. This generation, I mean, I've lived through this now for like almost 25 years, you know, there's these waves and they fall back and then feminism is a bad word. 
there's a, a suddenly critical mass of like your readers, 20 to 28 year olds, if you were to do a poll and maybe you have saying, do you call yourself a feminist? You would get much stronger positives to that question than any generation since the 70s. I'm certain, maybe more than the 70s. And their definition of feminism is cooler <laughs> than it was in the 70s, I believe. And I think, you know, we we worked really hard to allow that to happen. So yes, I do think that, you know, they're the daughters of feminists, a lot of them, and they've grown up and gone to college with, you know, Women's Studies 101, and they know about sexual assault, and they know about the gender gap, and they know about, you know, how hard it is to have work-family balance. And I think they're sick of putting up with gender nonsense. So yes, I think that the internet lets women show leadership digitally, and I do see a new wave also. And you saw this with Occupy as well a few years ago. Yeah. And now with all kinds of movements for trans rights and Black Lives Matter, women leaders are, are out front there, absolutely. I think that that was a big motivation for Emily's List starting, was really just to actually mobilize around getting women more interested in running for public office right. because so many of them require so many times to go out and ask them to or convince them that they are qualified to run for a specific office. Oh, yeah. Whereas I think if you ask, I think the difference between like for every woman they had to ask, I don't know, six or seven times. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. But for every man, it was like the first time. Sure, I'll run. Yeah. <laughs> Even if I don't have any political right. experience. Right. Why do you think there is a gap, though? I mean, what do you think we need to do in terms of translating that identification, that sort of ownership of feminist ideals and really translating that to real action? This is a really nice segue also to your website as right. well. Right. I mean, that is the critical question because, you know, shouting at the TV screen you, you can be as enlightened as you want and as... It is satisfying, though. It's satisfying, but it's it's not going to make, you know, lasting change. I mean, you know, just mass mobilization and real political tools has ever made any real lasting change. And we're at a time when we really need to make lasting change. So I came to the conclusion... Which is kind of bittersweet for a writer of books that books are not the way, <laughs> and that we need to build new tools to um, help people engage digitally and really make a difference. Um, I was a political consultant on women's issues for informally for uh, President Clinton's team and formally for uh, Vice President Gore. And I saw how difficult it was for people to engage with the process effectively. It's not that people didn't care. It's that um, many structures have been set up to keep the process of Exclude people. Exactly right. And so uh, I started a company. I co-founded a company with a very distinguished um, former CEO of Cliff Bars, a woman entrepreneur, uh, Lisa Thomas, and it's called Daily Cloud. And so what we did and do is we create digital tools to let you know women like your readers create real massive social change from their smartphones or from their desktops. So, for example, it was very hard for people to do anything about the bills being passed in Congress or in their state house, right? They might care a lot, I'm sure your readers do, about green zoning or solar or climate change or reproductive rights or trans issues, you know, racial justice, immigration, immigration, you know, animal cruelty, so many things that young women care about passionately who are your readers and, and our, our readers as well. And um, 
they couldn't change legislation. You don't even know what's in a bill. If you happen to get an email from an advocacy group and you send a note or call your representative, you don't know if you're one person or one person out of millions. It's ridiculously ineffective. And even petitions are not effective. They are not. So we created tools that are really effective where you, we created like a Google for bills where it's called Bill Cam and you can go to billcam slash dailycloud.io and look at it and use it. It's free right now. And you just type in any issue that you care about and you'll get your list of live bills. And then you can take a bill that you that matters to you. You can click on it. You get a snippet of code. You pop that into the back end of your blog or news article and it pops up the live bill. And you can vote on it. You can share it through social media. You can post it to Facebook. You can tweet the bill sponsor. You can tweet your representative. And it aggregates actions as it goes through social media. So as you can imagine, this takes the opacity and the smoke-filled room out of the process. And it's, you know, the bill is going live through social media and people are going, oh my God, look at that paragraph that defunds Planned Parenthood. So we've had 14 elected officials respond. The response time is down to like 15 minutes after someone tweets a Bill Cam article. People are freaking out so much that what they are trying to pass in secret is out there being tweeted by our 21-year-old writer, Haley Snyder. She got, you know, who outed someone who was going to defund Planned Parenthood. And it was buried in a bill with a completely different name. He was tweeting angrily at her, this member of Congress, within 20 minutes after she posted her article. That's incredible. I think we've been brainwashed, like the people who really don't want ongoing daily participation in the political process which is the, you know, the elites who control like what's happening. They really want us to be zoned out on edibles and watching the Kardashians all day long, every day. They really don't want us to be paying attention to or able to engage with the process. And so when I'm saying gently that let's rethink the idea that all we're expected to do is show up and vote. And that's why I love the tools that we're creating and, you know, the kind of platform that you're creating because It really should be an so everyday fun kind of thing. And and sort of the example I want to give you is we've been brainwashed into believing that these bills are arcane. No one can understand them. They're super boring. So why would you even care? So I've taken 12 brilliant, diverse millennials, mostly women, but we have some guys, and trained them to read the bills. And then they turn what's in the bill into plain English that a 16-year-old can understand. And they're also making infographics. Can you give us an example? Memes. Sure. Oh, my God. Um, Anjali and Bhavani Pitti, who are two um, sophomores, actually they just started junior year at NYU, they're twins. They did an infographic about where marijuana is legal, where it isn't legal, and bills that are pending to make it legal. And that got 40,000 post reach on Facebook. And they also did a, a blog explaining you know, a roundup of what's in these marijuana bills at a glance. Oh, but there are things they're really passionate about. Animal rights, they're vegans. They really care about animal rights. So they did a couple of blogs about bills to make it illegal to videotape animal cruelty. That's legal? Well, it's going to be if this bill passes. But you know, and then why? They, what would be the what would be the purpose of that? It protects agribusiness from people outing brutal uh, slaughterhouse practices or, you know, 
terrible treatment of animals. And they found this other amazing bill. It was incredible, where there was a, a legislator who wanted to put an exhibit about abortion next to an exhibit about slavery in the Indiana Historical Museum. And that bill was, you know, getting traction. And these girls are 20, young women are 20, and they, you know, they outed this guy. They put the bill cam of his bill in a blog, um, and they posted it, and he tweeted back at them. This is a whole se- separate guy tweeting angrily. <laughs> yes. And I'm not, I'm not saying we're Such there Such a to- covert operation. It's <laughs> so crazy. <laughs> we're not there to annoy legislators. Like, there are things we love. I mean, we're, we're nonpartisan, so we're not supposed to love or hate things unless we call it opinion. But another great example is Carolyn Maloney has some fantastic legislation. She's starting um, a women's museum, a bill to get a women's museum on the mall in Washington. So we did a blog post about it, uh, video, infographics. And again, it's video of like 20-year-olds, 21-year-olds sitting around talking in an informed way about the bill and why it matters, you know, to them. And we had 950,000 Facebook reach in May. So that was a high point. But That's um, great. It's Congratulations. Great. Thank you. Those milestones when you're launching a company are so huge. Thank you. But more satisfyingly to me, it proved the point that millennials and everyone are very willing to engage if you just explain it in English and make it fun and accessible. People think it takes millions and millions, and with these kinds of targeted tools, it really doesn't. You can stop a bill or push a bill with um, hundreds. I think that there is sort of this feeling of inertia sometimes after Mm. like the march or after these big events that bring everybody around and, you know, we're all sharing really important information and listening to different kinds of speakers, but then it's like, what's next? And I think we're all looking for that way of keeping everyone engaged and actually making sure that there is real impact at work. What I'd love to see is much more of a, a marriage between people's favorite sites where they gather to get like shopping tips or lifestyle information, more of a marriage of those sites with showcasing issue of the week, bill of the week, and then offering people the tools to do it. And I'd like to see more collaborations than products are offered in real time. For instance, when you were talking about young women and how there's really not a, a massive effort of any kind that I'm aware of to really mobilize young women. But young women have those top 10 websites that they love. And what if those top 10 websites, you know, created a kit that every college fresh woman gets that has the basics she needs to be politically active. And then those top 10 websites, either in competition or collaboration, had a feature every week of, you know, the women's issue of the week, the women's political story of the week, the cause you want to support this week, and then gave that woman those digital tools to do it and gave that woman an alert for how she could get together with other like-minded young women in her community um, around that thing. So it's like a perfect circle of activism, but it's fun. Like the critical thing that feminism has forgotten, cool, fun action that makes people feel actually empowered. And I think it's addictive because when you make activism fun and then you feed that action into the media and have a place in the media where you can continue that conversation and then bring it back into real life, it, it's just addictive, you know, because you're you're learning something. I mean, like, 
like this sounds dumb, but I've just discovered recipes on Pinterest and I'm a terrible cook, but you know, I'm doing vegan stuff on Pinterest and it tastes good and I can't believe it. And so now I cannot tear myself away from Pinterest and making these weird vegan recipes. And I feel so empowered, you know, that I've learned something basic, right? And if there was a way to create these kind of kits and places and cross-branded locations where people were learning new skills and making new friends and, you know, documenting, you know, what they did. And here's how we stopped, you know, here's how we ended the last 18 miles of rail trail at Albany. I think it would be absolutely addictive. I agree with you. It's really like in everyone's hands at this point. Or it should be. (laughs) And it should be. And I think that we do have to find ways that it does feel really gratifying, that you see the, the fruits of your labor. Exactly. Obviously, moving into 2018 is going to be a huge year just in terms of midterm elections. Mm. What do you think is just the best advice for young women about how to really like make the most of their voices as we move into 2018 and really try to see some even more momentum and change mm-hmm. when it comes to sort of reclaiming our power? Right. There? That, is, that is a great question. I mean, I really do love um, freedom of assembly and it's threatened right now. And I love freedom of speech. So, and that's threatened right now, unfortunately, from the left. You know, the whole rise in political correctness uh, on campus, I think, is very dangerous, even though it's coming out of good motives. Um, yeah. So I think the most important thing is to cause trouble, <laughs> you know, peaceful trouble. Make some noise. Make some noise, exactly. If there's a, an issue that you care about, um, find that advocacy group, work for them, raise money for them, uh, have a party in your house uh, to support them, and um, get active on Refinery29 and on Daily Clout to find other people who feel as you do and uh, make a revolution. Amen to that. Naomi Wolf, it's been such a thrill and an honor to have you on Unstyled. Thank you so much for making the time to be here. And congratulations on Daily Cloud. Thank you. It's an absolute honor and delight for me as well. Thank you so much. Congratulations on Refinery29. Thank you. I hope you're inspired after hearing Naomi's story. For even more Unstyled extras, check out Refinery29 or my Instagram at Christine Barbrick. You can also join the conversation using the hashtag unstyled across your social media. And of course, we'd be infinitely grateful if you'd please subscribe to Unstyled on Apple Podcasts and rate us while you're there. You can head to refinery29.com to find this episode and more, and make sure to sign up for our exclusive Unstyled newsletter, delivered straight to your inbox every week. Our show today was executive produced by Sarah Bernard, associate produced by Rebecca Easley, and edited by Priscilla Mena. Copy support was provided by Elizabeth Kiefer. Our theme music today is by the artist Koff, and we recorded Unstyled with Paul Ruist at Argo Studios. We'll see you back here next Monday with Refinery29's very own entertainment writer, Cecily Bowen, on the art of turning your voice into a dream job.